Hi everyone, it's Stu here, your dulcet-toned podcast host. Are you tired of ads interrupting your favourite true crime podcast? British Murders, of course. I mean, who needs a 60-second detour when you're in the midst of an immensely well-told story? The irony of this being an ad isn't lost on me, but I wanted to let you know that you can listen to British Murders completely ad-free by signing up for a Patreon membership. For as little as £3 per month, you'll get early access to ad-free episodes as well as a heap of other benefits. I've got a fair few bonus episodes you can sink your teeth into and every Monday I drop a new episode of the British Murders Weekly Journal. If you enjoy exclusive giveaways, my Patreon has those too. Head to patreon.com slash British Murders and choose either my OBE or KBE slash DBE tier to rid yourself of those pesky adverts. Plus, you'll be helping support your favourite podcast so that I can offer you even more content going forward. I'd say that I'll shut up now, but you've got the rest of the episode to listen to. Back to you, Stu. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases with an occasional glimpse at horror movies. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the 10th episode of season 4. It's the finale people. I've recently had a few people reach out to me because British Murders was listed as their number one listened to podcast on their Spotify wrapped summaries. It's incredible to think that people listen at all, never mind having me as their number one. Even top five, pretty special. Number one, magic. <laughs> it's weird. People message me, you're my number one podcast. I'm like, cool. I'm only joking. It's absolutely amazing. Thank you to everyone that did reach out and let me know where I was on your list, especially the ones where I was number one. An extra special thank you this week, though, goes out to listener Frankie Barnhart. I hope I'm saying that name right, Frankie. Frankie left a review of the show earlier in the year, and she said she knits whilst listening to British Murders. She then reached out to me via Instagram in July and said she would love to knit something for me. So we had a bit of a back and forth, and we thought, what should we do? Well, winter's coming, maybe a hat, some gloves, obviously I've got my little girl, and we agreed on the following. Let me show you what Frankie has knitted and sent me. This is crazy. So first of all, I want to make sure that the camera can see this. This is a little purple knitted woolly hat, right? That's for my little girl. And I've got the same. I've got the exact same. I'll put it on for the benefit of the video. I probably will wear this for the rest of the video because with a hat on, I think I've got a proper round head and I look like a bit of a twat. So I'll probably take this off. But Frankie also knitted some cute little mittens. Some cute little mittens for my girl. And I got some fingerless gloves as well. Seem to have misplaced those, but they're not on my arms. I'm going to take this hat off now. First of all, because it's warm. Second of all, it's not cold in here. There's no other reason. I don't want to look worse than I already do for the, re <laughs> for the recording. <laughs> Point being, thank you so much, Frankie, for taking the time to knit those for my daughter and myself to send them over here as well. Purple is a favorite color. We now match just in time for winter is coming. And speaking of my little one, it's now time 
for this. Welcome to Daddy Facts. That was the jingle for Daddy Facts, the much-loved, if I do say so myself, opening icebreaker segment of the show. If you're new here, welcome. And this show, this show, this segment, should I say, is all about dad facts. Now, my daughter got me a pack of cards a few years ago, probably for Father's Day, and it's called Dad Facts. And it's like playing cards, but each card has a fact on it, and you can't really play blackjack with it because it just wouldn't work. And I read one out each week and see if I know it. Typically, I don't. We try find one that will help us on a desert island. We found one that kind of would. Let's see what this week's fact is. Invest in a good exfoliator and use it once a week to remove dead skin and even out your complexion. Using an exfoliator before shaving can also help prevent redness and irritation. That is a good fact because I am into my skincare. I like skincare. I exfoliate twice a week with a face scrub. I also use uh, hyaluronic acid on a morning and glycolic acid on an evening and moisturizer and a face wash. And uh, I exfoliate my body daily. And I wash my hair with shampoo twice a week and condition every single day because you shouldn't shampoo every day because of grease in the hair and I'm boring myself. And I don't know why I'm talking like that. But I like skincare routines. That is a good tip. Please exfoliate, guys and gals. Anyone exfoliate your skin will thank you. <laughs> what am I on about on this show? You can tell it's the finale. With that done, let's move on to the second and final opening icebreaker segment of the show. It's time for this. The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku. Hi-ya! Here is this week's haiku. This is the last one. We've done one all season, and this is basically the end of the book now. Deep breath. A sludge, bones, blood, and flesh, bubbling in the bath. An eye floats, then bursts. And the picture we have this time is like a moon, a sunset kind of vibe. Now that's quite apt. I read that one, and I thought that's apt for this episode. Not as violent as last week's, but the bubbling in the bath... You'll come to see why that is relevant for this week's episode of British Murders. A haiku is a Japanese poem, which is made up of 17 syllables, in case you're wondering. It's three lines. First line, five syllables, then seven, then five. And it's meant to be read in one breath, which is why I took the deep breath. And the book is called The Serial Killer's Book of Haiku by Rose Bundy. Much appreciated again, Rose, for sending that in to me. It's been a pleasure reading those out every week maybe i need a new opening icebreaker segment now if anyone's got any ideas anyone wants to send anything in that i can read just at the start of each show along with daddy facts i've got a few more of them left let's do it for season five keep them coming in if you're interested in haiku there is a link to the serial killers book of haiku in this week's episode description it has been in all of season four you can get it on the link i will get a commission don't tell rose that <laughs> Moving on to this week's case, it was suggested by listener Sam Shields. Now, Sam reached out to me on Twitter. Don't get many case suggestions on Twitter, but Sam reached out and asked me to cover this particular case. Just to remind everyone, this fourth season was made up entirely of listener suggested cases. Season five's episode list is now officially full, again, of listener suggestions. So please get in touch if you want me to cover a case and get a shout out for your efforts. The first three episodes of season six have been filled so far. That leaves seven spaces left for that season. As always, 
Let's start this week's story by looking at the area where this story takes place. It's a place we have visited before on British Murders. In episode 7 of season 1, I covered the case of Trevor Hardy, who's known as the Beast of Manchester. I didn't provide any facts back then though, so let me remedy that just now. Did you know that Manchester has its own symbol? If you walk around the city with the country's fifth largest population, you may notice that bees are everywhere. I don't mean the insect, I mean bee symbols. I kind of mean the insect. Bees are all over Manchester, apparently. They're on bollards, benches, buildings, and even bins. My mate Dav, who appeared on the Chris Benoit episode, lives in Manchester, and I saw him last week when I saw The Offspring. Shout out t-shirt that I bought and forgot about. He's not once told me that a bee is a symbol of Manchester, but that's just typical Dav. Manchester is a city built on industry. This is the story behind the bee. The locals, who are known as Mancunians, made the city what it is. The hard-working nature of bees is therefore relatable. British soap opera Coronation Street is set in Manchester, or Corrie, as we call it here. It's the world's longest-running TV soap opera. It first hit British TV screens on December 9th, 1960. Mum, if you're listening, I know you say you've stopped watching it, but you always used to watch it religiously. Didn't realise it was as old as you. Sorry. (laughs) Manchester Airport, one which I frequently visited, is the largest regional airport in the UK. It serves over 26 million passengers every year. And did you know, there are 98 train stations in Greater Manchester. Did you care? If not, let's move on and introduce the first character in this week's story. His name is James Patterson Smith, and I must warn you that this case's graphic nature deserves a content warning. We're ending this season with one of the most horrific cases I've ever researched. This week's story includes themes of torture, domestic violence, and the murder of a teenager. It might be one of those episodes that you want to skip if any of the mentioned themes there are likely to upset you. Who is James Smith then? If I were to say he is someone who doesn't drink alcohol, doesn't smoke, and looks after himself physically, you might think he sounds like the perfect man. In reality, he is a violently abusive paedophile and most definitely the villain in this week's story. After getting married in 1970, James found himself divorced 10 years later in 1980 after becoming increasingly violent towards his ex-wife. I couldn't find much information about the marriage or his ex-wife, but it would have been interesting to know how old she was. Born in the late 1940s, James didn't waste any time moving on after his divorce. His next series of girlfriends were also significantly younger than him. That's why I would like to know how old his ex-wife was. James, who would have been roughly 32 or 33 in 1980, he started dating a 20-year-old woman named Tina Martin. Tina was at first wooed by James's charm, but it wasn't long before he reverted back to his violent ways as he had with his ex-wife. For the two years they were together, Tina was consistently beaten physically by James, and eventually the beatings became a daily ordeal. According to Tina, James used to hit her infrequently at first, but that soon changed. James would regularly punch Tina in the face and kick her between the legs. 
Tina's two-year hell peaked when James burst in one time when she was in the bath. He grabbed her by the throat and he attempted to push her head under the water. Drowning, by the way, is another theme heavily discussed within this episode. Tina was lucky to escape with a life before her relationship with James ended in 1982. The next person subjected to James's evil behaviour wasn't even old enough to be classified as an adult. Wendy Motter's head was just 15 years old when she met James Smith. That's one year younger than the age of consent here in the UK. James was roughly 34 at that time, more than double Wendy's age. Wendy was also subjected to regular physical beatings, and again, she was almost drowned by James. On one occasion, Wendy was in the bathroom when James suddenly grabbed her head, shoved it in the sink, which was full of water. He held it there briefly, but Wendy escaped with her life, as did Tina. It feels to me as if James was, in a way, practicing and researching how long someone could stay underwater without drowning. It sounds as if he was plucking up the courage to actually murder a person by way of drowning, especially a female companion. As the story progresses and you hear more, I'd love you to get in touch and give me your opinion on whether or not you feel the same as I do. After a few years of abuse, Wendy's time as James's abusee came to an end. Sadly, the next girl in James's life would not escape their time together with her life. Born on May 18th, 1978 in Hattersley, an area of Thameside, Greater Manchester, Kellyanne Bates was a mere 14 years old when she met James Patterson Smith. The then 46-year-old bumped into Kellyanne while she was on her way home from a babysitting job for his friends. Offering to walk her home to keep her safe, James began romancing and grooming Kellyanne, who, as a reminder, was only 14 years old. 32 years James's junior. James seemed aware that his actions were wrong because the pair's relationship wasn't revealed to Kellyanne's parents until she turned 16 two years later. Remember how 16 is the legal age of consent here? The logic was clearly for Kellyanne to not mention James until legally they were doing nothing wrong. At first, James was introduced to Kellyanne's parents over the phone. Margaret and Tommy Bates only realised the considerable age difference when they finally met James in person. Margaret said, Kelly brought him home when I was out. As I walked in, he swaggered down the stairs and it made the hairs stand up on the back of my neck. He was much older than I expected and looked a bit like John Denver. But he was smarmy. He said, nice to meet you at last. And all I could think of was how I wanted to get rid of him. This wasn't the man I wanted for my daughter. I vividly recall seeing our bread knife in the kitchen and wanting to pick it up and stab him in the back. I've thought about that many times. A year after meeting their teenage daughter's middle-aged boyfriend, Kellyanne moved out. The now 17-year-old moved in with James Smith on November 30th, 1995. Margaret and Tommy Bates never saw their daughter in the flesh again and less than five months later, she would be dead. The level of premeditation with this case is obvious. James allowed Kellyanne to call her parents every week, but a meeting in person was out of the question. Her parents reluctantly gave their consent on the condition that she kept in regular contact. That was the phone call part of things. One can only imagine the daily fear Kellyanne must have felt under the ruthless control of James Smith. 
At one point, Margaret and Tommy became so concerned about their daughter's welfare that they decided to head round to James's house and rescue Kellyanne. The trip never happened. Before setting off, the Bates's oldest son, Andrew, reassured them that Kellyanne had been seen recently by a friend of his. She was fine, he said unknowingly. The last sighting of Kellyanne alive was in December 1995. Margaret Bates's last conversation with her daughter was on March 16, 1996. Kellyanne had missed an appointment with a dentist and Margaret was furious. Despite their heated phone conversation, Kellyanne assured her mum that she would pop around for Mother's Day the following Sunday. She didn't show. Instead, Margaret received a Mother's Day card through the post. The weekend after Mother's Day was Tommy's birthday, and he received a similar card from Kellyanne. The same token gesture was received on the Bates' wedding anniversary. I'm leaving out a critical piece of information though. None of the cards received appeared to have been written by Kellyanne, despite being signed off as her. It wasn't the 17-year-old's handwriting. The letters had been forged by James Patterson Smith. Now, the following chain of events is extremely graphic. I'll warn you one last time to turn this episode off if you don't want to hear what happened to poor Kellyanne Bates. She was 17, remember, and this is graphic as fuck. On April 16th, 1996, exactly one month after Kellyanne's last conversation with her mum, a 48-year-old James Smith walked into his local police station. He explained to the officer on the desk that he wanted to report the death of his teenage girlfriend. According to James, she had unfortunately drowned whilst taking a bath. Despite his so-called best efforts, James claimed he could not resuscitate her. That, of course, was all bollocks. In reality, what had happened was one of the worst cases the police had ever seen. Detective Sergeant Joseph Monaghan said, I've been in the police force for 15 years and I've never seen a case as horrific as this. When Greater Manchester Police arrived at James's house shortly after being advised of Kellyanne's death, it didn't take them long to realise that foul play was involved. Blood was all over the house. It was literally everywhere. Strangely, James remained confident that Kellyanne's death would be ruled an accident. The police officers found the 17-year-old's body in an upstairs bedroom. She was naked and covered from head to toe in cuts, bruises and burns. James was immediately taken into custody and charged with the murder of Kellyanne Bates. A post-mortem was conducted by Home Office pathologist William Lawler. It was revealed that Kellyanne's body contained a total of 150 separate injuries. Lawler said, In my career, I have examined almost 600 victims of homicide, but I have never come across injuries so extensive. It came to light that James Smith had been torturing Kellyanne Bates for around four weeks before finally ending her suffering on April 16th, 1996. Here is a breakdown of what happened to Kellyanne Bates during those last few weeks of her life. This isn't for the faint-hearted. She was repeatedly punched and kicked by James Smith. She was stabbed and cut with scissors to her ears, nose, eyebrows, mouth, lips and genitals. Part of her scalp had been cut away. She was scalded on the left foot and buttocks. 
A hot iron was pressed against her thigh like you would brand a cow. She had an untreated fracture in her left arm. Both her hands had been crushed. Both her eyes had been gouged out. And they said it was no less than five days and no more than three weeks before her death. What's worse than that? Her empty eye sockets were repeatedly stabbed with pruning shears and knives. Her life was finally ended when James Smith struck Kellyanne in the head using a shower head, knocking her unconscious, and then he drowned her in the bath. That is honestly one of, if not the worst things I've ever had to research. That poor, poor girl. James Smith then allegedly said to the officers at the station, I've killed her. I know I have. I know I'm going away. I know there is no point. I'm going to get found out anyway. What a sick bastard. What's ridiculous is that when the case came to trial, James Smith pleaded not guilty to murder. What a ridiculous thing to do. The trial was held in November 1997 at Manchester Crown Court. James Smith told the jury, which was made up of seven men and five women, that he had mutilated and tortured Kellyanne because she had dared him to do it. You know, he say, I dare you, you'll never do that. Go on then. That's what he was basically saying, that she was forcing him to do it or asking him to do it, as he put it. He insisted that Kellyanne often pretended to be unconscious and made her injuries appear worse than they were to make him look bad. He said, she had a bad habit of hurting herself to make it look worse on me. The trial lasted less than two weeks and when the jury retired, they had settled on a verdict within an hour. On November 19th, 1997, James Patterson Smith was found guilty of the murder of Kellyanne Bates. He was handed a life sentence with a minimum term to serve of 20 years. Sentencing judge Mr Justice Sachs said in his closing statement, You have been convicted in short order and rightly so by the jury of murdering this young woman. This has been a terrible crime, a catalogue of depravity by one human being on another. You are a highly dangerous person. You are an abuser of women and I intend, so far as is in my power, that you will abuse no more. Dr Gillian Meze, a consultant forensic psychiatrist, explained that James showed signs of suffering from a severe paranoid disorder, as well as morbid jealousy. She also noted that he appeared to live in a distorted reality. This case was so uniquely disturbing that every single member of the jury was reportedly offered counselling to help them process the images seen and stories heard. Every single one took the court up on that offer. And that was the story of British murderer James Patterson Smith. Thanks again to Sam Shields for suggesting that case. I've got one new review to read out this week. Thank you, Jaden555, if you're 555, then I'm 666, <laughs> Slipknot, for leaving British Murders a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Jaden said, I work nights and I constantly listen to these episodes. Makes my shifts go so fast. I'm really enjoying them. Cheers, Jaden. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read out on a future episode. If so, you can do that on iTunes, Podchaser, or Facebook. All reviews help increase the show's exposure and they're greatly appreciated. 
Each month you can support British Murders by joining my Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash British Murders. You'll get early access to ad-free episodes, access to my scripts as well if you join up. If you'd prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, please visit buymeacoffee.com slash British Murders. Merchandise is also available to purchase at Teespring. The link is in the episode description. I don't make profit off the merch. I just want to see people wearing British Murders swag. For more on British Murders, please check out all my social media channels and YouTube. Continue emailing me your case suggestions. It's BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or just send me a message on social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you will also get a shout out. Before I go, I just want to thank Frankie again for sending the knitwear to my daughter and myself. Did also send in a little card here, a postcard, if I can just get that on the video. It's a picture of some cheetahs, I believe. Just says baby animals on the back. I think it's cheetahs. Looks like it. And it says, enjoy, stay warm and healthy, a grandmother, Frankie. Appreciate it. I really do appreciate it. But that's it for now. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.